recording. Um, I'm super fun for this episode because it's kind of our Halloween episode. It is kind of our <laughs> Halloween episode. Now, last time we hit Halloween, we were a little bit spookier. Yes. Um, but this time we're all requests. So we picked the two like fun, spooky-ish characters. Yes. Um, I wanted to go for more of like, I don't know, like a campy feel for Halloween this year. I love a campy Halloween. Mm-hmm, me too. And this also happens to be our 100th. <laughs> episode or 100 actual episode actual episode yeah not like 100 in terms of like interviews and stuff like that right. we're well over 100 if we hit those but this is like our our 99 or no two 100th episode 200 women so we're at 199 <laughs> and 200 right now that's insane these two women <laughs> have made the cut and came in in under 200. Wow. And you requested them, people. So congratulations. You really did. We picked some <laughs> like familial requests, though, this time. Yours is my little sister. Yes. And mine is your friend, Mora. Yes. From college. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That wasn't on purpose. It just happened. It just happened. So are you ready to do this? I'm so ready. This cocktail looks delicious. I can't wait to talk about these women um, because what we're about to do this Halloween special is for a podcast called Her Story. On the Rocks! With Katie. And Allie. This is a spooky podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because oh, women have nuance. Mm-hmm. And we're not normally spooky. That's just this week. Just but <laughs> But to let you know, just to give you a heads up, if you're new to the show and you're like, why am I halfway through this episode and these women are slurring their words? It's because we're drinking the entire time. We are seriously, literally drinking hard liquor, nonstop. sometimes wine, sometimes beer, nonstop. Don't take a break. And we give you the, the cocktail recipes to go with us so you can drink too. Absolutely. Unless you're driving, in which oh, yeah. case don't drink. Definitely don't do that. We have a new patron <laughs> this week, Sarah. We Thanks, Sarah. Sarah you should be getting stickers in the mail soon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, And we got some new reviews this week. So thank you guys for that. That's such thank a free you. way to help us and we love it. Yes. Go give us a Halloween review if you haven't yet. Jeez, a spooky Halloween review. Um, <laughs> so while you're busy writing your review, you're doing that. So you can't look up the women because you're so focused on just writing an ode to Hearst around the rocks right. on the Apple iTunes thing. So when we're telling you these stories, we want you to have a glorious mental picture in your head. So we are going to describe what these women look like. We are going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I am doing Pamela Coleman Smith this evening. And uh, everybody knows what she looks like. You can look up a picture of her very easily, but nobody knows what her race is. Really? And she's so like racially ambiguous that it's very, very hard to tell. She may have been biracial, but we don't know. Interesting. Could have been a mix with Native American and or Asian background. But just honestly, it is heavily debated online. And we'll talk more about it when we get into her story. Um, But pretty much like a 
medium to light skin tone with uh, a prominent American family, a proud heritage and background. She usually has her hair like pulled up and tousled on top of her head with a really cute little smile, a very young looking face and playful eyes. And she's usually in a lot of jewelry and like heavily ruffled clothes that are Mm. almost costumey. And then in the most famous picture of her and the one that I love the most, she has her arms like folded in front of her like an I Dream of Jeannie style (laughs) and looks just very mystic and playful. So that's what she looked like. But I really it's very when you look at the picture, you'll be like, oh, I see what she's saying. Like she could have been biracial, but also could have been white playing up a mystic vibe. Right. So interesting. Hmm. What does your lady look like? We all know this one. We all know. I'm doing Lucille Ball. And Lucille Ball was once described by my very own aunt who (laughs) climbed atop the wall of Lucille Ball's backyard like a lunatic. Yes. Um, (laughs) She totally invaded her privacy and saw her son bathing in her backyard. And she said, that woman is the most beautiful woman I have ever ever seen in real life she's stunning just when she was just laying in her backyard so she wasn't even like you know doing it up for anybody um so shout out to my aunt die for being a lunatic um but lucille ball is most famous as a redhead even though she was actually born with brown hair she dyed her hair blonde for a bit and then we'll talk about the switch to red but she's most known as having big curly red hair she has pale skin these like blue sometimes violet eyes that have incredible eyelashes that just seem to extend almost to her forehead she has usually like a big bright red lip and she's gorgeous and stunning but she can just mold her face into the funniest poses and expressions and I also didn't know this until I did this research she would write expressions into her script Oh, she had specific names for the different faces she would do. And she wrote it down in her script. She's like, OK, do the foxy face, do the pinched face, do this, do that. Like, like she stage direction, stage directions, cool. but for her very own face, because she also knew it very well. Right. <laughs> um, and when she was young, she had she was so thin that she um, was known as a girl who like couldn't really get into the choir because she didn't have any the right assets. Um, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, she just was I don't know she was just incredibly beautiful I don't know like she just had these cute cheekbones and amazing expressions and I mean everybody knows what Lucio Ball looks and like. I mean she is <laughs> bubbling over with joy yeah like all the time all the time so yeah yeah so that's what she looked like <laughs> uh do you want to know what you're drinking I do it looks delicious okay so this is called card pixie Ooh. and it is so you fill a tumbler glass halfway with white wine mm-hmm. I use chardonnay and then you top the rest almost to the top with pineapple juice mm-hmm. and then you put in about three-fourths of a shot of gold schlager and then chunks of pineapple and a strawberry mm. all right yeah well, cheers cheers I personally fucking love it. It's really, I was going for the colors. She's a very vibrant artist, my girl. So like, I really wanted these, the colors to pop the yellow and the red. Um, There's no pineapple juice in it. No, there's pineapple juice in it. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I thought there was just pineapple chunks. Um, But yeah, I feel like it's just like nice, boozy, cinnamony pineapple. Right. 
I feel like this is like a baked pineapple cake with cinnamon on it. It does. It tastes like a dessert. And yeah. I like it. Mm. Um, so if you haven't, have you ever seen a picture of her? Mm-mm. So this is what she looks like. <gasps> Very cute, right? I know a girl who looks like just like her. I used to work with her and she is just like she's like that type of girl that like anything she wears just looks really good. And she looks like she could be alive now. <laughs> she does. She looks very modern. Yeah. Oh my gosh. She's super cute. So I wanted you to see it because I think that helps with her story a little bit. But first, what do you know about Pamela Coleman Smith? So I really only know that she's involved with tarot cards. I think that she created like the most widely used type of tarot card. I don't know too much about tarot. I know Maura does a lot of readings and stuff and, and all that. And it's like, I mean, we have a thousand little houses that do tarot card readings in Baltimore. <laughs> um, a thousand. Literally a thousand. And when I was training for the marathon, what I found out is they open earlier than like Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Because I would go out to run at like 4 a.m. and they are open all night. Yeah. Tarot They're places. crazy. They are. Um. So, yeah. So that's all I know is that she's involved with the tarot deck that we use today somehow. Yes. And she's kind of mystic and spooky. She is. <laughs> she is. And I I really enjoyed her story. I am woefully undereducated in tarot. So if I misspeak and you're really into Pamela Coleman Smith, please tell me. I'm yeah. totally fine correcting myself on air. Um, I mean, it's not our fault. We grew up being told that if we even touched a tarot card we would burn in burn in hell for eternity like (laughs) Like, no and we would get i definitely thought that i'd be like possessed like i was told that with like ouija boards like they're like if you even touch a ouija board you're letting satan and you'll you'll be possessed and nothing made me more afraid as a child than the idea of being possessed by a demon yeah it's very scary it's not a fun thing to tell a child (laughs) no don't do that Uh, so There is this incredible, beautiful book out about her life right now called Pamela Coleman Smith, The Untold Story, because she just recently came to light. And it is like 400 pages of like the story of her life plus pictures of all of her artwork. So Mm -hmm. if this story is really interesting to you, I heavily suggest you buy that. And then I also listen to the podcast Deviant Women and read a Mm -hmm. whole bunch of online articles. I do, too. It's a really good show. So Pamela was born in London on February 16th, 1878. She was the only child of an American merchant from Brooklyn. So both her parents are are, are American. So even though she was born in London, both her parents are American. That's so opposite. That's weird. It's very opposite. So her dad was Charles Edward Smith, and he was the son of, like, a mayor in New York. So Mm -hmm. her dad had, like, a prominent political family. And then Corinne Coleman was her mom, and she had a really big artist family. Like, her grandmother had illustrated, like, books and published them, Mm -hmm. and her uncle was an artist. So, like, she is not, like extraordinarily wealthy but her family is well established and like comes from money which is a lot why a lot of people argue that she was not of color Mm. um but again we do not know so she lived in manchester for the first decade of her life but then her dad got this job opportunity in jamaica when she was 10 years old the british were sending like railroad companies over to the west india improvement company this is like the opposite of the wind windward generation Mm -hmm. that we talked about last week um 
And she lived in Jamaica from the time she was 10 until she was 15. So, like, her middle school and high school years are spent in Jamaica. The um, Little Smith family, like, party of three, they (laughs) lived in Kingston. And they traveled back and forth from Kingston to London to New York, like, all through her childhood. And to give you an idea of her life, she had done 20 transatlantic journey or no she had done 23 transatlantic journeys by the time she was 20 years old oh my god so more than one a year of her life Ugh. going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth god i thought driving to delaware was rough once a year when i was a kid yeah seriously <laughs> she was going everywhere by the time pam yeah three hours in the car back then really felt awful yeah it did wait you said transatlantic yeah i know so that'd be on a boat right? yeah i know i was saying for us three- oh <laughs> Three hours in a car to <laughs> Delaware was horrendous back then. I thought you were talking about her, and I was mm. like, I don't know. It was a three-hour trip. <laughs> it was not a three-hour tour. Um, okay. By the time Pamela was 15, she moved permanently to New York to enroll in the Pratt Institute, which was an art college in New York, and her parents stayed in Jamaica. I think it still is. I, I didn't know it had been around that long. Yeah. It had only been open for six years okay. by the time um, she went there. She studied under painter, printmaker, and photographer Arthur Wesley Dow, and he was an influential art educator in the U.S. at that time. She was a very good artist as a youngster. You know, she's in her teen years and she was influenced by symbols and romanticism. And people at the school considered her really talented and original, but she wanted to do things her own way and definitely acted above it all. Like Mm. she's just kind of like above education. So she would go back and forth visiting her family in Jamaica and she would sell in Jamaica posters that she made in school in New York she would bring them back and sell them and she even did like a little solo exhibition at like 19 years old in New York and sold like four watercolors I just feel like her story sounds so modern it is so modern even though this is the 1800s I can't believe that I know and then she published some pictures in Century Magazine um I just she was very very successful as a student so, of course, because she was successful, she did what any good man would do. I don't really need this and left school. <laughs> so good on her. I mean, right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm better than this. I'm already selling my stuff. I don't need to be here. I'm going to branch out on my own. So in 1896, while Pamela was in New York branching out on her own, selling things, her mother in Jamaica died. And Pamela was pretty upset, but she was really close with her father. So she goes back to Jamaica to help her dad out with like household duties. Now, it's not like she was like a slave to the household. She had a level of freedom in Jamaica. She would like explore, bop around the island. And Jamaica, it called her. (laughs) She loved it. She loved the culture. Oh, I'm sure. In Jamaica. So she begins to be very interested in Jamaican folklore Mm -hmm. and decides to start a miniature theater (gasps) have you ever seen these like little boxes almost like a diorama they're like 18 square inches and she would make all these little wooden figures and paint them and then she would write plays to go along with them and then like perform them in public with the little figurines yeah like puppet show yeah like inside the box so cool it is and by 1899 she had 300 painted wooden figures that she would use I just want to be this girl. I know. She's really cool. And her story really never has a downturn. So it's (laughs) it's really nice. Um, 
And she would give all these public performances and her father would help out with like special effects and music and like things for the boxes, like smoke. And people around town are like, I've never seen a more gorgeous presentation on stage than like these performances, these like little miniature theaters. Her most famous play was about Henry Morgan, who is literally a pirate of the Caribbean, which yeah. is where she was. And she had a <laughs> cast of like 40 little pirates <laughs> that she played with. And in her story, she sews pirates as successful but then she also flipped the coin and made the female characters behind the pirates very witty and quick and also like attributing to their success so she branches out then and starts adding jamaican tales and jamaican characters to this miniature theater this has large ramifications in constructing her identity and how she's perceived by others because there's a lot of commentary online If she is, in fact, a woman of color, then her contribution to art and the world has been ignored like a lot of women of color. Right. If she is not a woman of color, then she absolutely appropriated the culture and used it for her own benefit. Right. So it's... It's tricky. It's it's tricky. It's hard to say. And people, there's heavy debates about it. And I don't know which side I fall more strongly on. Yeah, I don't know. Um, And as her story goes on, I, like, I... Either she was biracial and able to pass as white because she's doing a lot of things that you could only get away with in the 18 and early 1900s if you were white. Right. But then also like people perceived her as biracial. Um, and at the time? At the time. Yeah. Her contemporaries um, would say of her, well, oh, isn't she a curious little thing? They saw her as like mystic and foreign and mysterious but she's also like putting on that show yeah kind of like a gypsy ish type performance but it's just hard to say because we don't know I feel like she really embraced the gray area Mm -hmm. (laughs) she was like I'm just not gonna answer anyone I am going to let this remain a mystery and just keep doing my thing. (laughs) Exactly. Because she was getting away with both, which is so insanely rare. Um, So she did, of course, capitalize on using Jamaican folklore. It was a big part of her work. She would retell Jamaican stories and she uh, published a book of Jamaican folk tales in 1899. She obviously did not write these folk tales, but she republished them and she wrote them in Jamaican vernacular. You know how like Charles oh. Dickens writes in like Cockney? Mm-hmm. She would write like that, which furthered the idea that she was of Jamaican descent, even mm-hmm. though she was only there from when she was 10 to 15. Like the cinnamon. Yes. From Applejack's. Exactly. Rushes. The cinnamon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, her spin on these tales took like, again, heavily male characters like there was this big bad guy who was like a trickster and she would play with their gender identity and instead of being like this big patriarchal tiger she turned him into a gender inconspicuous spider and like would be like okay instead of this guy being a definitely a male we're gonna like play with that a little bit and make it androgynous i love that yeah so then her dad dies (gasps) Leaving her at the age of 21, an orphan. Both Mm -hmm. her parents are gone. But she now has the freedom to kind of totally leave Jamaica altogether and bounce around the world. So she returns to England that year and continues to work as an illustrator, branching out into, like, the theater design in England. So... She's in London and she gets taken under the wing of this theater group and they give her the name Pixie. 
The people in her group include, and these are some pretty famous people, Ellen Terry, Henry Irving, Bram Stoker, (gasps) W.B. Yates, and Jack Yates. Oh, my God. And she just (laughs) travels around with, like, these people helping them with costume and stage design. Wow. Yeah. Like, really famous people and even illustrates a book for Bram Stoker at one point. Now she didn't illustrate Dracula, but she illustrated a book that he wrote. That's pretty cool. It is cool. So that lends to the spookiness. <laughs> so happy sh- Halloween. <laughs> happy Halloween. <laughs> the monster mash. <laughs> so <laughs> she is starting to play also with her own notions of femininity. She's dressing in loose-fitting clothing and sometimes pants. She starts diving, now that she's in England, deep into Irish folklore. So Mm. let me get to this other island and look at their folklore. And she's also playing with Victorian standards at the time. She publishes two of her own books that she illustrates called um, Whittacombe Fair and Fair Vanity. And in both of those, she has the women in the story very bold and like staring at men at like dances and like is definitely playing with the way that you see women in public. So while she's in London in 1901, she buys a flat and holds weekly salons (laughs) at this flat for artists and authors and actors and like other people involved in the art. And she has this really, like I said, curious artistic circle and she just attracted artists from all over. She was like bohemian London at this time. So um, she also at these salons and out in public starts performing her Jamaican stories Ooh. in England. And people start to get really, really interested. And the guy who wrote Peter Pan went to see her perform these like with a in her little like um, 18 inch box thing. And he was like, that's the most beautiful way a story's ever been told that I've ever seen. Like, I love it. Now, she wants to publish and she wants to publish all these Irish folk tales, but they're not as easy as they were in Jamaica because they won't let her play by her own rules. So she's like, fuck you guys. I'm going to start my own magazine so I can publish whatever the hell I want. So WB Yates helps her to start this little magazine called the broad sheaf, which she has for one year. And it has like post poetry and illustrations and Irish folklore. And then she decides I want to publish one without him. So she starts another magazine called the green sheaf and it has stories and art and nonfiction. And it's a lot of her friends work. And then she's also republishing dead artists. And this lasts for about 13 months until she's like, I'm not really making money off of this magazine. It's a lack of a financial decision. This is kind of dumb. So she shifts her idea to actually opening a small press so that she can publish things and not have to pay to put it through another publisher. So she opens the Green Sheaf Press in 1904 and she publishes a variety of novels, poems, fairy tales and folk tales, mostly by female writers. That was important to her. This is all with the help of W.B. Yeats and the theme of all of her stuff was dreams and supernaturalness as she gets more and more into the Irish Celtic world. Um, so, as it turns out, they were Swedenborgans. Have you ever heard of that? It sounds familiar. It's like a branch of Christianity that is way more open-minded and almost agnostic. Oh, and- never mind. I have not heard of that at all. Oh, okay. I think I was thinking of... Borgen and Bots or whatever that thing is from from Harry Harry Potter. Potter. Yeah. So (laughs) Swedenborganism is kind of like this mystical, spiritual 
Oh, like Chris- Sweden, the country. Yes. And then Borgenism. Borgenism, yeah. Uh-huh. It's like a um, spiritual thing. Um, and it they were open to the Trinity. They were open to God. But they felt like that a God by any name is still God. And it like tracks all of the religions back to like one root source and mm-hmm. how they're all super similar. And I think this just is because she traveled so much around the world and mm-hmm. like saw how Jamaican religions were and how Irish people were and how British people were. And like so she was just very open to a lot of these. And it the ideas of salvation are very like karma esque. Like you gain salvation by doing good in your life. And when she breaks into this spiritual world, it turns out that Pamela is synesthetic, which is usually something you can't do if you have all five senses. So you know how like a blind person can sometimes see with their ears. Like they're (laughs) so good at listening. Yes. Or like that you or like a deaf person can like feel vibrations through their feet. Yeah. She had all five senses and she could see music. Huh. So she would hear music and then she made it part of her artwork to draw what she saw. Whoa. And she didn't like draw notes or like draw the theme of the music. She actually could see the music. So she would go to concerts and like post up in the corner and get out a sketchbook and then make like 20 to 30 paintings like during the concerts. And this is like Bach is playing on stage and she's sitting in the back like painting Bach's work. And did people get it? Were people like, that's exactly what it sounds like. They got it. Really? I want to see these. (laughs) Yeah. They got it so, so much that people were saying this is what it looks like to put dreams into real life. Yeah. And they were so powerful that a guy named Alfred Stieglitz gave Pamela an exhibition in New York. He owned gallery 291. And the reason this is cool is because his gallery was for photography only. And he was like, no, I need this art in my gallery stat making Pamela the first painter to have shown in his gallery that isn't photography. And she showed there several times. She sold almost everything out that went in there. And then she goes on a tour with all of these music pictures to Philly and London and Edinburgh. And she sold almost all of them and becomes relatively well known from it. And most of these pictures are again of strong women. That's so cool. The show is so successful that she goes back to him two times. He also was the one who ends up like helping out Georgia O'Keeffe at some point. Like, so, you know, it's so funny because when you said gallery, was it 291? Yeah. It sounded really familiar. I think that that was the gallery in New York that she had her photos. Exactly. In. Yeah. So it's, um, they, they made sure to pair those two together in the yeah. article. And now a lot of her leftover work is put in a um a lot of Pamela Coleman Smith's leftover work is in a Georgia O'Keeffe like display very interesting with her stuff so all right through Alfred and W.B. Yeats she becomes involved with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn which is kind of like a culty I was gonna say it sounds like a cult culty (laughs) culty mystic group and it's like a secret society devoted to studying the practice of metaphysics and paranormal activities and it's kind of like a magical order but that's where she meets Arthur Edward Waite and if you're a tarot person that's the last name you've been waiting for if you're not I'll explain in a minute okay um 
So the Golden Dawn, though, has a schism and they like splinter into two groups. So her like bestie, W.B. Yates, goes one way and he's into more of like the witchcraft stuff. And her and Alfred Waite go the other way. There's this more like Judeo-Christian. Like she's always on the edge of Judeo-Christian worship. Okay. So Waite becomes really good friends with Pamela and he recognizes like the spiritual world in her. He's like, you can see you have symbolism. You're a visionary. Maybe you're a psychic. So he's like, listen, I've got this idea for this awesome tarot deck. Like, will you collab with me and we'll like totally make this happen. And it does, as you said earlier, end up becoming the most famous tarot deck of all time. The tarot deck that all other tarot decks are based off of. And it's now the traditional one that's sold in stores. So tarot cards were traditionally Italian playing cards. There was no mystic properties. They would have like the cups and the swords and like, Mm -hmm. you know, the major arcana and the minor arcana or whatever. They would have all that stuff, but they eventually like got these like mystic properties to them and they began to have different artwork on them and they would transform people did used to paint the major arcana which we would call like the face cards okay like the queen the magician the empress the fool those things Uh nobody ever illustrated the minor arcana which are like the suits and the numbers they would just have a suit and a number just like our cards do today right she illustrated all 78 cards oh shit all of them and they are really stunning and you can see Jamaican influences Christian influences Irish influences like all the things are like poured together on this one card um and then they also involved this other layer of alchemy with fire and water and earth like they all have an element assigned to them as well now wait retroactively says he had a plan laid out and he gave her a lot of the ideas. And we do think that's true of the major arcana, but the minor arcana are mostly her. We do know that there were the British library had a famous tarot deck on display when she was making these and she did go see it. Um, But this is, it's her art. These 78 cards are all her art. And when she was a kid, she was really into King Arthur and her dad like took her to the castle where King Arthur was born. And she was really interested in the search for the Holy grail Hmm. and stuff like that. So she begins to paint her friends into these cards. So all of these like major cards are based off of people she knows. (gasps) And a lot of the cards are her London suffragette friends who are fighting for the right for women to vote. And people believe that she was drawing the search for the Holy Grail as equal to women getting the right to vote. Like the Holy Grail for women is Is the the right right to to vote. vote. Like they are one and the same. In our famous tarot cards. That's so cool. The ones that we all use. (laughs) So it's really cool. And all the male figures, again, are androgynous. They have curly hair. They have like red lips. So there's like some special features to them that make you look at it and go, that doesn't really look like a male or a female. Like I don't know what this character is. Yeah. So, um... The result is the Wait Smith, or sorry, the the Rider Wait deck. Her name is not involved at all. Hmm. Rider is the guy that published it, and Wait is the guy Arthur Wait. It was his idea. Um, so 
up until the 70s, everybody called this deck the Rider Waite Tarot deck, dropping her name completely. And this deck, like we said, became the most popular of all time and influenced all subsequent decks. She got paid almost nothing, had no... In, had no royalties coming in from this. Now, in 1970, the cards were bought by U.S. Game Systems, and they call it the RWS deck, the Rider Waite Smith deck, including her last name. Mm-hmm. And they publish a bio of her in each of the card decks. <sighs> That's awesome. So it goes in there, and then people started realizing they wanted to know more about her. And now there's a lot of books, but. This is like one of the most significant contributions to tarot art and to just female art in general from this time period from a woman and then possibly a woman of color. And we just knew nothing about her. Yeah. It's insane. So other than her early success with Alfred's studio in New York and the tarot deck, she didn't really have much other success her biggest supporter was actually the actor who played Sherlock Holmes in America William (laughs) Gillette weird and he like has all her artwork is still on display like in his castle like from when he bought it whoa yeah um with London as her home Pamela decided after this deck was done that she was going to really dive you know, headfirst into women's suffrage. So she joined the women's suffrage movement and was tasked with illustrating the propaganda posters and signs for the suffragettes. So, you know, those posters that it like looks like a thin figure and like, she's like holding up like a lamp. It almost looks like a tarot card, that London suffragette poster. She made that poster. That's so cool. And, um, then world war one hits and she donated her art, Um, and poster design to like Polish relief funds. And then she made a whole bunch of her little wooden figures for the red cross, like to donate as toys for kids. And in 1911, she converted to Catholicism. She was kind of done with the mystic stuff, which, you know, there's a lot of ritual in Catholicness. So I think it was right up her alley. Yeah. Um, But at the end of World War One, she got this big inheritance from her uncle that enabled her to lease this house in Cornwall. And for income, she established a vacation home right next door to her for Catholic priests. And they would like hang out there (laughs) during the summer. (laughs) So after several (laughs) years, I know. I'm just imagining like... uh, these priests all in this I know it's not like a pool house but, but it's like, weird right but like a little vacation home that has a pool and they're doing like baptism bombs and whatever like you know with like with like instead the of cannonballs like with like the girl who was like a mystic and yeah. like made the tarot deck can you like pairing Catholicism with the tarot deck is so funny to me yeah and they had no idea I'm like so they so much appreciated it they're mm-hmm. like of course we'll take this summer home <laughs> but public taste really changed after World War one you know yeah. all the after wars people just change the the way they look at art and yeah. she really found it hard to find work and she kept publishing her entire life but she just wasn't making enough money now that sounds sad but the last 20 years of her life are like my favorite thing <laughs> so Another element of her identity that we don't know about is uh, her life companion, Nora Lake. They lived together for the last 20 years of their life. Now, she never married. She never had children. She had no heterosexual relationships or interest in heterosexual love at all. Nora had been married earlier, but her husband had died. Um. We don't have any like letters between the two of them, but they did write like inscriptions and pet names in the front of books for each other. 
and lived together next door to Catholic priests for the last 20 years of their lives. They had to have been together. They had to have been. Oh, my gosh. So, and I mean, she's always played with, you know, being, like, gender neutral, like, throughout her entire life. So you can kind of see how it would go that way. No, absolutely. Again, she is just a visionary for for a modern-day woman. (laughs) It's wonderful. That's incredible. Yeah, so... Right after her lovely time with Nora, September 18th, 1951, Pamela died in her apartment. The location of her gravesite is unknown, but she's most likely put in an unmarked grave in St. Michael's Cemetery. An exhibition of her art was shown in 1975 called To All Believers, The Art of Pamela Coleman Smith. And it was sponsored by the University of Delaware. Again, like I said earlier, there is an exhibition of her stuff and Georgia O'Keeffe's stuff. And that was held in 2007 and 2008. And now there are tons of books being published about her, not just um, true life books nonfiction but also fiction where people are like making up the relationships between her and her tarot cards so there's like a lot of cool stuff you could read so she is finally after all these years getting the recognition she deserves for her art and that is the story of Pamela Coleman Smith that's so cool what a cool girl I know (laughs) she was just very cool nothing (sighs) bad really ever happened other than the fact that like these two dudes didn't give her any money for the art she made right but like Other than that, she was just like bopping around, living a happy life, exploring with her most likely lesbian lover and like her ambiguous religion that nobody ever got pissed at her about. (laughs) It was very cool. That's really that's just wild. That was very enjoyable. I just like didn't I I would love to also like know more like about tarot in general because I just like don't know anything about it. Like I need to like really look into it. I know that like Mora does her readings but I never know like what <laughs> what's going on. So yeah. I always feel really stupid. Um, but but yeah, that's so fascinating because I love the artwork that's on the card. So now I know where it came from. You do. And I hope like everybody just felt like and I know there's like a Halloween ep- episode and like Tara is supposed to be like spooky and mystic, but it's just really a nice story. Yeah. This is not like a Lizzie Borden type of spooky. No. This is like a <laughs> this is like a happy type of spooky. So I thought it was really cool. And Maura, thank you so much for the request oh, because it really you. was a treat to look at this artwork and like learn about her life because she really did seem like a fun person. Yeah. Mm. All right. All right. Let's get another couple of drinks and we will take a deep dive into Lucille Ball. Whoa. <laughs> Okay, so we're back with part two. We have just a nice little cocktail, a little refreshing beat. Um. <laughs> yeah, I I think this is going to be fun. I really am excited to learn about Lucille Ball. I know like very limited things about her. Um, this this has been a real most part no drama evening yeah no we've had all the supplies for our cocktail everything's been quick yep i mean kids aren't being too terrible no they're not being too crazy um this is going to be a very drama-filled story okay good so get ready for it (laughs) i I will get ready for it 
Um, but first, what am I drinking on this Halloween episode? Okay, so this is called Tango Red. Uh, it's more pink than red, but that's okay. Um, it is an ounce and a half of vanilla vodka, an ounce of triple sec, and then you do a half ounce of raspberry simple syrup, and then you top the whole thing off with just a splash of club soda. So cheers. Cheers. Mm. The raspberry's delicious. You yeah. can definitely taste it. Mm. Um... Yeah, it's just a very simple, refreshing drink. Sometimes that's <laughs> all you need. Yeah. Besides love. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So what do you know about Lucille Ball? So I know Lucille Ball is like the first woman of comedy. Mm-hmm. I know that she uh, was on the iconic show, I Love Lucy, mm-hmm. where they had separate beds and they <laughs> said pregnant on tv for the first time well they wanted to but they couldn't. oh right, right, right. <laughs> okay they could not say pregnant on tv for the first time i don't know a lot about her personal life um i'm sure because she was a woman in like hollywood and producing there's some sort of awful things happen to her like either from from disrespect to abuse I'm sure mm-hmm. at some point and then other than that I really just I've always just I think I tie all the old Hollywood stories together yeah yeah and just like because I know like we did Betty White and you know we we've done many like Judy Garland and like people like that and it's just like I feel like they've all got this similar wavelength of like yes. you're going real slow up the roller coaster and then it's just like yeah <gasps> down the hill yeah but you don't put your hands up because it's scary nope <laughs> all right so tell me the the real things because I'm, I'm sure I'm gonna be really excited about her life and this is yes. for you Marjorie yeah this is for you Marjorie thank you for requesting Lucille Ball I've always wanted to do her because her story is really bananas and I didn't realize the effect that she has had on modern day television before doing this it's insane what the show i love lucy did for television so we're gonna get into it um i got most of this from the history chicks because they did two like really in-depth episodes about her and then i watched a couple youtube videos i read the wikipedia page and stuff like that online like there's everything and anything on lucio ball there's (laughs) um so lucy Lucille, sorry. <laughs> Lucille Desiree Ball was born on August 6th, 1911 in Jamestown, New York to parents Henry Durrell Ball and Desiree or Dee Dee Evelyn Ball. So she called her mom Dee Dee. Her father worked for the Bell Telephone Company, but because his work required a lot of travel, the family found themselves moving very frequently. In just a few years, they moved from New York to Montana to Detroit to New Jersey. But... When Lucy is three years old, her father dies of typhoid fever, leaving her and her pregnant mother (gasps) all alone. Typhoid fever. Typhoid fever. Oh, man. When Lucy heard the news, it just so happened to be a day when a bird flew into the house, wreaking havoc, knocking things over. And it just in Lucy's mind, it was like the worst day of her life. And Lucy wouldn't connect it for years, but... Her whole life, she had a debilitating fear of birds, which eventually later on, she was like, oh, my gosh, it's because a bird got into the house the day I learned that my father died. Like, she couldn't even see, like, a statue of a bird. She would flip out. She's like Alfred Hitchcock, scared of birds. Absolutely. Wow. So 
Back to New York they went, the little family, to live with her maternal grandparents and her aunt, who I think also like had a daughter. So it's like three generations living in this place called Lake Chautauqua um, or Chautauqua. Um, and eventually her brother Fred is born a couple months after, so he never meets his dad. Oh, that's sad. So, I know. So poor Dee Dee. She has to move in with her parents and her sister and they're living like she's just like back at home with a newborn and like grieving. And it just it sounds absolutely terrible. Um, but Lake Chautauqua or Chautauqua, what Chautauqua? <laughs> It's kind of a beach vacation town. It has amusement rides, summer crowds. It just sounded like really fun. Um, But a few years later, when Lucy is seven, her mother remarries to a man named Edward Peterson, who apparently was not a huge fan of children. Oh, (laughs) he just kind of thought that they were a nuisance. And he honestly expected Dee Dee to just give them to the grandparents so they could start their life alone together. Apparently, at their wedding day, Lucy went up and she took his hand and did the typical, like, are you my new daddy? And he just slinked her hand off and he said, you can call me Ed. Ew. I know. Ew. <laughs> just like gave her the most like, I'm disgusted with you look. Oh, I hate him. <laughs> but... You know what? At the end of the day, he was right. Ed got a job in Michigan and Dee Dee said, okay, see you guys later. And she left the children with the grandparents. No way. For her new husband? Mm -hmm. But the grandparents were like, we can't raise two kids on our own. So Lucy, for some reason, gets shipped off to stepdad Ed's parents. What? This man that she barely knows. She's now living with his parents. That's insane. Like in the in-law parents. Yes. It's so fucking weird. I don't know why. And so you have poor little Lucy who has traded Vacation Land USA for this old puritanical Swedish couple that she has like never met before. And they are super strict. Lucy was punished for literally anything and everything. One time she was punished for looking at herself in a mirror. They had taken all the mirrors out of the house except for like one little tiny one in the bathroom. And when they caught Lucy looking at it, they punished her for being vain. Ew. She like wasn't allowed to see other kids, wasn't allowed to go outside, just like berated all the time, told she was going to hell. Like it was really bad. (laughs) I feel like there was a book that happened in. Was that Divergent? That there isn't mirrors or is that? Uh, I don't think it would be divergent. Hunger Games. Oh, I don't. Oh, the mirror thing. I don't know. Yeah. There's something like hmm. that. I, it was some like YA fiction book that it was yeah. just like they didn't have mirrors. I yeah. was like, that's very strange. <laughs> um, so needless to say, this is not the best time in Lucy's life. And the shitty part is her real grandparents are just a trolley right away. And her brother's there. So when she would go and visit, it was like physically painful for her to see how her life could be and she just didn't understand why she was being little orphan annie on the street and fred was being like a prince at his real family's house like it really sucked so cut to four years later she did this for four years (laughs) lived with that awful awful family her mother comes back into the picture because good grandma is dying of cancer this is where fred is 
Lucy is sad because her grandmother's dying, but she's like, fuck yeah, I'm back in the big house <laughs> in yeah. the good neighborhood. Thank so God I'm here. She's finally kind of like gone back home. Um, so she's back with her friends. She's putting on little plays with them. She's seeing free movies in the park every night. Again, it's a vacation town. So, of course, she had a classic summer boardwalk job for many of her teen years, slinging hot dogs and hamburgers like Coney Island style. And because she's fucking Lucille Ball, she was like kind of famous on the boardwalk for how good she was at selling hot dogs on the, like out, out front of this place. Very cute. <laughs> of course she would. I mean, I could totally see her. I, I would buy a hot dog from her. Oh, I and I'm not a hot dog fan. would. Um, now, Ed did redeem himself a little bit when she was a teenager. Um, he decided that since she was kind of like a real human being now, he would take her to shows and stuff. So Ed is actually the one who kind of introduces her to real theater. And she's like, fuck, yeah, that's what I want to do. And this mixed with a really deep desire for attention led her into seeking a life of show business, which then led Lucille to just threatening at least once a week to pack her bags and run away to New York city which, <laughs> when she would get into a fight with her mom. And her mom was like, okay, have fun. I'm like, running away. Whatever. <laughs> um, but this devil may care attitude was not so cute and spunky when it came to boys. When Lucille was 14 years old, she started dating the local bad boy, Johnny DeVita, whose father was kind of suspected to be involved in organized crime. Oh, he sounds like a leather jacket kind of oh, boy. Oh, he is. Uh, let's just say his father was a tomato salesman with a Cadillac. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and when I say bad boy, I, what I really should say is bad man, because Johnny DeVita is 21 years old when he starts dating 14-year-old Lucille. That's inappropriate. Disgusting. That's inappropriate. Disgusting. Um, of course, she defended Johnny at every corner, but a lot of moms in the neighborhood started to forbid their daughters from hanging out with Lucy because they didn't want them riding on the roof of no boys' cars like floozies like Lucy was doing. Oh, floozy Lucy. Uh, no, floozy Lucy on the roof of the car, Lucy as Lucy. usual. And of course, Mama Dee Dee is not having this. Like, she sees what's going on. But in the beginning, she was like, that's young romance. It'll fizzle out, Whatever. But after like a while, like I think it was like a couple months to like a year, she was like, uh, okay, that's enough. <laughs> this didn't fizzle out like I thought it did. So we, I, I need to step in. So she's like, all right, all you talk about is theater. That's all you ever fucking talk about. So she enrolls Lucy in a very prestigious theater school in New York, the John Murray Anderson School for the Dramatic Arts, where very famous starlet Betty Davis had gone. And Dee Dee must have really believed in Lucy just as much as she wanted to get her out of that town because this school cost a pretty penny, just about $5,000 a semester in today's money, Damn. which is a lot. And they were not in the money like that. So she must have like really hated Johnny. <laughs> so off to New York, she went. And when it was time for her to audition to get into the school, because they didn't just take anyone like you have to audition for art schools. I think that's like another like thing that people don't get about art schools is like you have to audition to get in. <laughs> they don't like they don't they don't just take anybody. Right. So every other girl who's auditioning is doing these long flowing Shakespearean sonnets. Lucy gets up there and she does a crazy physically comedic vaudeville bit. <laughs> 
Of course she does. Of course she does. And the people at the school loved it. They're like, oh my gosh, this girl is a breath of fresh air. I love it. We like never see anyone do anything like that. So like this girl obviously has talent. Um, but unfortunately, things fell apart very quickly here. Um, once Lucy got into the classes, she got really shy and she totally shut down. Imposter syndrome? I think so. I Damn. think she was like, I don't fucking belong here. What am I doing? Right. And the headmaster of the school even called Dee Dee and was like, look, I don't want to be an asshole, but you're wasting your money. This girl is nothing. And he said, I'll just give you your money back. Just take her back. Oh, my God. I know. What an ass. Wow. So she did finish out the year, but she said, all I ever learned in that place was how to be frightened. (laughs) So she goes home from the summer and sad little 16-year-old Lucy is back home. And then things get worse when a weird tragedy strikes her family. So the story goes that some kids are playing outside with a gun on Lucy's grandfather's property. Do not give children guns. I don't know why that ever has to be said. And one of them accidentally shoots another kid in the neck. (gasps) The kid is paralyzed for a while, but eventually he dies. And Lucy's grandfather, even though he was like so far away, not involved, he's charged with negligence because a child was shot and like ultimately killed on your property. Like, so he goes to jail for a little bit actually, but really the big brunt of the pain here is that they need money to settle this court case. So they take everything that the family has. Oh my God. They take the house, they take the land, they take their furniture. And again, you have three generations living in this house. So like everybody's fucked. And it is heartbreaking because then they all also have to split up because they can't find another big farmhouse for all of them. So everybody just goes into these tiny little apartments and it just, it really sucked. And Lucy was like, okay, I can't let this be my life. I really need to buckle down and try and make it in showbiz. So she basically drops out of school and starts auditioning like crazy in New York. She gets a few small roles, but she can't really be a chorus girl because like I said in the physical, she has a very different body type than the other girls that were in the chorus lines. Like the showgirls would actually kind of make fun of her because like you're skinny and gangly and you don't have any boobs and you don't have a butt. And like she's just like this bean pole. Like <laughs> she's not like the right proportions. Yeah. Like okay. women in these chorus lines and stuff back then were kind of expected to have more of like a Marilyn Monroe, like voluptuous type of body. Very busty. Yeah. And she just didn't have that. Um, And this leads to her not getting booked very often. So for about a year, she's just living on scraps from people's tables. Like she'll go into a restaurant and like take like the food off of people's table that they haven't eaten, like half a donut, like, you know, a bit of a burger and she basically lives off of popcorn and ketchup soup and shit like shit like that. I mean, she's like really struggling. And then this leads to her doing some unfortunate like topless photo shoots that she didn't really want to do with some shady guys. But she finally gets a decent job as a showroom model for this incredible fashion designer, Hattie Carnegie. And she actually got the job because she resembled a movie star client of Hattie's. But Hattie said, you've got to dye your hair bleach blonde so I can really see what's, what it's going to look like on my client because the movie star had blonde hair like most of them did back then. 
So, well, gentlemen prefer that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she did this for about a year and she said she learned a lot. She goes, Hattie taught me how to slouch properly in a thousand dollar hand sewn sequin dress and how to wear a forty thousand dollar sable coat as casually as a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but after passing out in a forty thousand gar- dollar garment one day, Lucy discovered that she had rheumatic fever and she had to just quit everything and go home for a couple years like she was really really sick um so she takes a break but she made do at home she's back on her feet she gets a ton of part-time jobs she was an elevator girl a soda jerk she sold makeup and of course she was selling hot dogs on the boardwalk again like (laughs) she was just always working I don't even always understand like what her sickness is I don't know, because like someone was like, I read somewhere that it was rheumatoid arthritis, but then like, I don't think arthritis just like comes for a little bit and like goes away forever. No. Yeah, that's weird. Um, To just like to go home and to need rest, um, but then be working constantly anyway. It's, mm-hmm. it's very strange. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't know. So then she starts to get involved with some local theater products, projects, and then... It's just like a real roller coaster. She gets incredible reviews in these little plays in, in like, you know, the outskirts of New York. And that leads to her getting a part in a real play back in New York, like Manhattan. And then she starts going by the stage name Diane Belmont and telling people that she's from Montana because it sounds more exotic. (laughs) She gets her job back at Hattie's. She's booking a ton of modeling gigs. She becomes the Chesterfield cigarette girl in a series of ads. She's making about $100 a week, which was no chump change back then. No. So right now she's like very early 20s. So she's kind of really starting to like work. And I think... Honestly, I think she kind of needed that time to kind of mature because when she'd first gotten there, like first she was in high school and theater school and then she's in that she's like 17, 18, like being this model, you know, I think it was just too much. I don't think she I think I think she needed that break back home. Um, But she starts making enough money for her family to come and live with her in Manhattan and Let me tell you, I think she was feeling pretty good about her life choices because around this whole time, Johnny DeVito went to jail and his father was shot. So she was like, wow, glad I went to New York. Glad you Um, slid right (laughs) off the top of his car and into showbiz. Exactly. My girl. Um, But after her family came to New York, new things were on the horizon and she gets an opportunity she can't refuse in Hollywood as a Goldwyn girl in the 1933 film Roman Scandals. So these are like those classic giant musical numbers with girls all done up in like crazy golden costumes. You know what I'm saying? Just like basically a chorus line, but with big musicals. Every movie back then had massive chorus lines. Yeah, It was insane. So she is one of those. And apparently she got the gig because another girl dropped out um, because her mom wouldn't let her do it. (laughs) (laughs) But all she needed to do was get her foot in the door because once she started working in Hollywood and on film sets, people started recognizing her as a really, really hard worker. So for a really long time, she was just a reliable girl who got along with everyone and would just do anything on screen. She got... A lot of pies thrown in her face, <laughs> mainly thanks to the three stooges. So she actually <laughs> did a lot of work with them because she was a good physical 
comedian. Yeah. And so every time they need it, they're like, okay, we need the young, cute cigarette girl to take a pratfall. They're like, all right, get that girl, that blonde girl in here. Like, you know, get Lucy. <laughs> like, she was just working constantly. She fell a lot. <laughs> um, I love a physical comedian. Somebody who's good at it. I know. Like Kramer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Right now, she's also dating someone in Hollywood. He is the assistant to a movie star who is married <laughs> to a woman named Carol Lombard. Or maybe just dating her. I don't know. Uh, but she was a very well-known comedic actress who, like, when they would go out on their double dates, because, like, this guy is his assistant. He's very close to him. She is like, I see your talent. And she takes her under her wing and is like, Okay, bitch, this is who you got to talk to. This is how you got to promote yourself. And she really invests herself in young Lucille. And for a while, she's just a steady working actress. She hasn't gotten her big break yet. But again, she's just plugging away and eventually making enough money doing these small gigs to bring her family out to California. She's always focused on getting her family back with her. She loves her family. Um, but she's kind of bummed. She's like, yeah, I'm working, but I'm not a star. And she really felt like she it was just like never going to happen for her. And in one really sad moment, she's talking to a fellow actress, a little someone by the name of Margaret Hamilton, <laughs> who, of course, would play the, the Wicked, Wicked Witch, Witch of, of the, the West. West. <laughs> and she's like crying to poor Alphaba, like, I'm never going to be famous. <laughs> but she's thankfully, like, bitch, I am. <laughs> But thankfully, along with Carol Lombard, someone else came to really help her out. Layla Rogers, mother of Ginger Rogers. Who fought off a bear while she was in labor? Yes. Remember that crazy ass story? Yes. <laughs> Supposedly, the very distant aunt of Lucy. It's never been proven, but Ginger and Lucy would always tell people that they were cousins. Bull crap. I know. There was no it's like never been. There proven. was no ancestry.com <laughs> back then. Come on. But Leela kind of had this reputation, as we kind of talked about in your episode, of like just like knowing what to do in Hollywood. Like she was like a really wild stage mom. And like they she even like had an institute at some point where she would like teach girls how to be starlets. Yeah, and she was like cutting film together. That was like yeah. her job. She yeah. cut film. Mm -hmm. So what a cool woman. Oh, she's very side cool. awesome women. <laughs> and so she sees Lucy and she's like, you fucking got it, girl. Let me help you. She starts training her how to walk, how to talk. And then she's like, Okay, now we got to get your teeth fixed because those are not movie star teeth. <laughs> so me too, girl. Me too. <laughs> I know. So she starts getting her, and she also she starts getting her parts in local theater productions because she's like, you need to learn how to, you know, really learn your lines because it's just the pratfall girl. Like you don't have many lines. She's like, all these are little bit parts. You need to learn how to actually be with a big script and like be there on time, you know, not mess up your lines like you need to get used to this kind you of mean work. what like other starlets were not doing yeah, yeah 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 so she ends up getting a part in a movie called stage door alongside dear ginger her Ooh. cousin i guess and <laughs> the movie starred katherine hepburn but this was almost the demise of young lucy because while she's doing the movie she's in the process of getting her teeth fixed and she had these caps that she would put on her teeth 
And there's one day where she's getting her makeup done and Catherine Hepburn just comes barging in. And Catherine Hepburn is like this huge star. She's very demanding and apparently very hard to work with. And basically, they throw Lucy out of the room so Catherine can get her makeup done. They won't let her back in. But her teeth are still in the room and she has a photo shoot to get to. So she's banging on the door, banging on the door. She's like, I need my fucking teeth. Like, just hand them to me. Yeah, just give them to me at least. And they're like, no, go away. Catherine Hepburn's here. So Lucy is so mad. She gets a cup of coffee. She knocks open the door and just throws the cup of coffee inside, expecting to hit the makeup person and instead just hits Catherine Hepburn right in the face with a cup of coffee. (laughs) That's the coolest story I've ever heard. What a badass. And Catherine Hepburn tried her darndest to get her blacklisted from Hollywood. (laughs) But everyone who had worked with Lucy was like, it was a mistake. This girl's a really hard worker. And eventually Catherine Hepburn did admit to being in the wrong. She was like, we should have just given her a fucking teeth. Like we were kind of being jerks. Good, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn. Get your shit together. Good on you. You're not bigger. Um. You're not better. <laughs> okay, so now it's like 1938-39, and Lucy's taking up a notch. She's getting tons of roles in B-movies, so these are kind of like your Hallmark Channel movies, Lifetime, and she's making about $2,000 a week. Wow. Mm-hmm. She also starts working in radio a lot, doing comedy with Jack Haley, a.k.a. the Tin Man. She is yeah. just all over that cast. Um, I brought up Judy Garland <laughs> at the top. At the top. <laughs> and she is having a lot of success doing this radio comedy hour, and she starts getting a lot of attention. But it was when she was filming a little movie called Too Many Girls, that, which there are never too many, um, that her life really changed. So there's a scene in the movie when Lucille and another girl have to do this crazy, intense fight scene. And, of course, everyone is on a tizzy. They're like, oh, my gosh, two girls fighting. I guess, like, all boys want is for, like, boobs to fall out because they're like, we don't have, you know, like, I don't know what they want with the girls fighting. I really don't. It's very like, odd. It's a very strange thing. Um, so, anyways. I think uh, it <laughs> makes them feel powerful, like they're fighting I over guess. me. Yes, I don't know. I think they're just waiting for boobs to fall out. Maybe. So everybody's excited. They can't wait to see these girls go at it. So Lucy and the other actress start selling tickets to watch the filming of this scene. It's Floyd Mayweather. And they end up making a ton of money and they donate it all to charity. That's so (laughs) kind. That's so funny. I love it. What a great way to use your femininity. I know. Seriously. they film the scene and they do not disappoint. These girls are going at each other like cats on a hot tin roof. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. It sounded like old Hollywood. And by the end of it, Lucy gets off set. She's sweating. She's exhausted. Her hair falls in her face. She's in a torn up burlesque costume. And she sees the most beautiful man she's ever seen in her entire life. Desiderio Alberto Arnaz. Ricky Ricardo. Ricky Ricardo. <laughs> That's who she sees. So he was also in the movie. He was playing like a football player, a band leader or something. I don't really know. It's, I've heard different things. Um, <laughs> but basically, this whole movie was an adaptation from a Broadway musical. So he was reprising his role from Broadway. So they never really run into each other. And by the end of that week, Lucy had broken up with her boyfriend. Desi had broken up with his fiance, And... Literally, no one thought this was a good idea. 
<laughs> but why he's adorable i know I love people were literally taking bets on when they would break up <laughs> and the person that won the bet because he had guessed the longest time um got his money because he had guessed six months that was the longest anyone bet on them <laughs> um so, so it was price is right rules price is right rules okay. yes mm-hmm. and even from the get-go they fought all the fucking time. Apparently, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who lived in the same building as Lucy. Oh, really? Mm-hmm, um, he would play a drinking game and he would just be like, all right, well, if they, you know, fight about this, then I take a shot. And if Lucy wins the fight, I take two shots. If Desi wins the fight, I take two shots. I don't think he really needed an, an excuse to drink, but he liked it. Okay. So, yeah, so he'd play a little drinking game while they were fighting. That's how bad it was. But the problem here is that they made up just as good as they fought, which is a terribly vicious cycle to be a part of. They would. Sounds fun. Oh, my gosh. They were just like the worst. They would ignore each other's phone calls. They would go on dates with other people to actively make each other mad. Like they'd be like, well, I'm going out with Betty tonight, so don't call me Lucy. And she'd be like, well, I'm going out with Harold tonight, so don't call me Desi. And then they'd like (laughs) get together later that night and bone. Like it was unbelievable, this couple. They were just so like nasty to each other. But the thing was they just had a really intense physical relationship and also one of desi's big strengths was that he was very good at big gestures oh <laughs> which made lucille bite every fucking time he'd be like i know i was a dick earlier but i wrote you this song and she would like melt so gifts are her love language absolutely <laughs> So, but they were really sick of fighting. They're like, I don't want to fight anymore. And Dazzy was like, all right, well, I think in order to stop fighting, we should probably get married. That's Which is not, not a good. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say at the top that I, I knew they were married, but I wasn't sure that that was true. So I didn't want to say it, but I think it was. Yep. So, okay. okay. I mean, you should probably not use marriage as a solution to a problem. Never. Never. Marriage will make the problem worse. No, I it's like guarantee a, it. Marriage is like a cherry on top of an already good pie. Yeah. Or a really bad pie. Oh. Like a rancid cherry on top of a horrible pie. Oh. So, Desi and Lucy eloped in Greenwich, Connecticut on November 30th, 1940. And when Desi was late to his show that night, the audience cheered when he explained why exactly he was late. They're like, oh, my gosh, it's so romantic. (sighs) They end up buying a ranch out in the valley where they had chickens, pigs, cows and like all sorts of shit. Like she loved to garden and all she wanted was a farm. Um, But then they're like, hmm, having a farm is really hard when you're in show business and you're on the road all the time. And you can never be there you to can take never care of the be animals there. and the plants. Apparently, like, the pig got to be 400 pounds and then it just died under its own weight, but then they never ate him. So, like, it just went to waste and, like, just, like, this crazy situation. So, <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. But with no surprise at all, the marriage started to spoil pretty quickly Desi hated that she was more famous than him and she's not even that famous now but like people know who she is so like he's a lot less famous so but he's a he was a 
stage actor. I know. Not I a know. screen actor. He just actor. doesn't get it, That's though. just what I, it is. That's how it is. I know. So, and he really hated, and she really hated that he was on tour most of the time. And she always felt like he was out cheating on her and, like, running around town. And they even had a shed out back of their house that they literally made up as the dog house where Desi would go and they were fighting. Like, that's how like sleep in the dog house like was. a real real story yeah um but soon she found herself with the big guns she gets under contract with mgm and i think this is when desi's upsetness at her feminist really got rolling mm. um so mgm they were like you know we're doing this hot new thing called technicolor and we think that you would look stellar as a redhead Lucy wasn't super keen on it, but there she was with a big new curly head of tango red hair, which would become her signature. So that was the name of the hair dye. Tango red. Tango red. Um, and in 1943, she finally got a leading role in the hit movie. Dewberry was a lady with red skeleton and Jean Kelly. So now she's like in a real fucking Hollywood movie. And like, this is very names. exciting. Those are big names. Um, so she gets this movie. It goes over great. It's so exciting. But then it's not like things at home are still shit. This just makes it worse. Her getting success in this movie makes all the problems that she's having with Desi worse. And then things really crash and burn when she gets real confirmation that while he was running around the country with his band doing USO tours, because we're in the midst of World War II right now. Right. He, um, he was sleeping with women in just about every city. That's and how men are. I know. I and hate it. I hate it. I, it's horrible. And, you know, he was also drinking a lot. And she was just sick of the whole thing. So in 1944, Lucille filed for divorce after just four years of this really turbulent marriage. But as you can probably guess, because of this show later on that happens, they don't actually get divorced I, on this that's what, I was so confused just I know now. I know Wait it's a, a curveball <laughs> so the night before the papers were to be signed Big Lucy gesture. and Desi met up they went out to dinner romance ensued they slept together which voided the divorce certificate no <laughs> their sex voided the divorce certificate. Did he know that that would... Did he I know? don't think so. Okay. Because... But she literally, like, the next morning, like, got ready and was like, all right, like, I'm going to go get divorced. And he's like, we're still getting divorced. And she was like, yeah, I'm still divorcing you. And then he came back and he's like, but we slept together. And then the judge was like, well, you can't get divorced if you slept together within 24 hours or something crazy like that, which I don't even know if that was a real law. I think there is a separation thing, though. Before yeah. you can file for divorce, you have to be yes. separated for a certain amount of time or mm-hmm. something. I think you're right. So, yeah, there might, that may have been more strict back then. Maybe. So... And then, unfortunately, her career kind of followed that downward trajectory. MGM was having a hard time finding lead roles for comedic women, and she's getting older. So even after the success of DuBerry Was a Lady, they terminate her contract. So wait, she's old and funny? Yeah. How dare she? How dare she? How dare she? <sighs> and childless? Mm-mm. No, thank you. And a redhead at that? <sighs> I know. Lucille is devastated. Desi goes back on the road with his band, which made her feel even worse. And also, going back to the childless thing, she's has two miscarriages around this time. Poor so girl. 
She's getting more small roles and more radio stints, and then she slowly gets to get her spirit back um, because she's kind of going back to her comedy roots, and she's focusing on making people laugh, and they feel really connected to her. And when people find out about her miscarriages, she receives thousands of letters from supportive fans that listen to her on the radio, and she responds to every single one. That's so sweet. I know. So really what's taking off is this radio show show she's doing called My Favorite Husband. And CBS sees how what a hit it is. And they're like, hmm, I think this could really work as a TV show. So they approach her about it. And she says, yeah, I would love to do this show, but only if Desi can play my husband. Because this would solve two of her biggest problems. He's not on the road her, anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're both equally famous. Mm-hmm. Listen to me keeping a rap I list know, over here. I know. But the studio said, absolutely not. We can't have an interracial marriage on TV. He's yes, you Cuban. Can. Yes, you can. So they're like, okay, okay. We can prove to you that America will be okay with this. This will be a successful show. So... They turn their show, pre it being I Love Lucy, into a vaudeville act. And Lucy and Desi go on tour together doing I Love Lucy as a stage act. On the, sh- on the road? She's stomping yeah. on grapes on the road. I know. Isn't that crazy? Like, yeah. I just didn't know that that's where it started. So they go on this tour and... People are fucking loving it. And of course it works. So the studio execs were like, okay, fine. We'll give you a pilot, but you have to sleep in separate beds. And if the audience members are uncomfortable with Desi being Cuban, the show is getting the boot. And even though negotiations were like really stressful, Desi made one very crucial business move. He said, no matter what happens, no matter if it's a flop or a success, or if the studio burns down, we own the film that we're going to be shooting on. We own the show. And they're like, okay, whatever. Cause they like weren't super convinced that this is going to be a hit. So the other things that were very wisely negotiated were pre filming the show to be distributed, which was not the norm. So it was normally done. I think it was called like kinetoscope or something like that, right, 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 yeah. where it was a live feed. So like it was always live. So like we talked about that in Betty White, there's Betty White, there's the tap dancer and you're seeing it while it's happening. But Desi was like, we should film it and then distribute it. And then they can just play it like they would a movie. And people were like, that is genius. And then he says, I also want three cameras instead of one. He wanted this, like him and and Lucy both wanted this to be like a very highly produced show. That's how sitcoms are still filmed. I know. Three cameras. And it's because of I Love Lucy. This show started it all. That's incredible. And it's also why we can have so many reruns. Yeah. It's not like a live, like they've got the film feed forever. Yeah. And that's because I Love Lucy also created the rerun. Which we'll get to in a minute. Stop. Um, but there's another crucial thing going on while they're developing and filming this first season. Lucy was pregnant. And I honestly can't imagine the stress. She's already had a few miscarriages. She's on camera. She's trying to keep her marriage together and get the show off the ground. But on July 21st, 1951, Lucy gave birth to her first child, a daughter named Lucy Desiree Arnaz. And on October 15th, 1951, I Love Lucy premiered on CBS, an episode called Girls Want to Go to a Nightclub, setting up 
The classic Lucy and Ethel trying to pull one over on Fred and Ricky. (laughs) So fun. Now, to give you a little dish on the show, we've all heard about the beef between Lucille and Vivian Vance. Um, Apparently, it all started because Lucille wanted the landlady character to be like a lot older, and she thought Vivian was too pretty. Um, So... Lucy, I'm not going to lie, was like really rude to Vivian in the beginning of the show. And people asked Vivian later, they're like, how did you get through that time? She was like, honestly, I just wanted to be famous. And if I had to put up with her in order to do it, I was going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Been there, girl. But here's the thing. Apparently, like as the show went on, they became like best friends, which I think is the part of the story that like we don't get. Like everyone's like they hated each other. And it's like, yeah, but they became really good friends like at the beginning, like a little bit. (laughs) So they also had really interesting rules for the writer's room. None of the jokes could be unkind. And Lucy was the only person allowed to make fun of Ricky's accent. And Ricky was not allowed to look like an idiot husband. So if he was doing like something silly or stupid or like, like he was part of the joke. He was in on it. Cause it's like a thing we talked about before, like how husbands are old, like typically in sitcoms portrayed to be like fucking idiots. Oh yeah. Like if you think about like home improvement and like, I mean, even cartoons like the Simpsons, like the, the husband is a bumbling idiot mm-hmm. and the wife is like trying to fix it. Yeah. And like, he'll do silly things, but like ultimately like, He's always catching Lucy like he's always onto her schemes. You know what I'm saying? Like there are hijinks, but he's not stupid, which I like. So <laughs> um, and of course, I don't need to tell literally anyone that this show was an insane success. By the end of 1951, about half the TVs in America were tuned into this show every week, Mondays at six. It was just a runaway hit despite its first negative reviews like of course reviewers hate everything but they like really didn't like it um and i think this might be the first instance of a tv show literally affecting the pace of the u.s honestly like Like, everybody stop at the same time on the same day and watch this show like there were restaurants that like changed their hours around i love lucy there was like a time where like like Mondays at six, like the cabs took their breaks because no one needed a cab because no one was out on the streets. Everyone like was home. How we all were with Survivor the first time. <laughs> Survivor. I was thinking more of the Super Bowl, but <laughs> but you know, it's kind of like when you drive on Super Bowl night. It is weird how few cars are out. I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> I. I did it when I was going in between Super Bowl parties one okay. time and okay. it was very strange. Mm. Um, so of course season two comes in roaring in with another new and interesting plot line because Lucy is pregnant again. And instead of hiding it or postponing filming, they wrote it into the show, which was crazy for the time. Um, and of course people were really nervous about it because this meant that at one point those two beds had been pushed together. They must have had sex somehow. They must have had sex. So they hired a priest, a rabbi, and a minister to come into the studio to monitor the scripts to make sure that they were clean. (laughs) Is this a kosher script? Is it kosher? Who knows how many hot dogs are in it. Um, So, or in her. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) 
because they wanted to make sure they weren't being blue. Um, and so they're like, okay, yeah, Lucy's in the family way. She's expecting, but she's definitely not pregnant. <laughs> they were not allowed to say that on TV. <laughs> also, mind you, Lucy's like 41 or 42 at this time. So this is like high risk pregnancy. So also high risk geriatric pregnancy, as they <laughs> love to call it. Um, and so it's also not only that she's pregnant, but she's a slightly older woman that's pregnant. And if we're talking about a boost in TV viewership, the episode where Lucy gives birth to little Ricky was like the most viewed event on television up to that point. Apparently Eisenhower's inauguration the next day, nothing compared to that episode of I love Lucy. Apparently they did not like Ike. They did not. Uh, they loved Lucy way more. <laughs> um, and they did a really interesting thing where they had planned Lucy's C-section to directly coincide with the like release of that episode. So the night that everyone is seeing Lucy, you know, having a baby she's on TV, actually she's having actually a baby having a baby in real life. Very cool. Which is like this cool kind of like birthday present. It's like you little Ricky Desi Arnaz Jr. You have an actual like episode of like what it was kind of like for us and the excitement and how much everyone was looking forward to your birth. But then the negative side of this was that people just couldn't get it out of their heads that like Lucy and Ricky were different people than Lucille and Desi. Oh, I can't get that out of my head. I can't either. It's nearly impossible. Because they were a married couple on TV playing a married couple. Yeah, it was very confusing for people. And it still is, honestly. Um, And then, so just her life is so crazy. So the show's going... Things are going fine with that, you know, whatever. But then I think because she's much more in the public spotlight now, there's this big drama comes in because Lucy is being accused of being a member of the Communist Party. <laughs> oh, time to blacklist people. Red time list to people, blacklist whatever it is. Whatever it's called. Blackball, whatever. A lot of people in Hollywood went through that at so that time. So many. Um, so to give you a little background... Back in the 30s, after Lucille's grandfather had been through all that terribleness with the boy getting shot, with the gun, whatever, the family wanted to lift his spirits. Um, So he was like, it would mean a lot to me if you all registered with the Communist Party. So they all, that's, that was his request? That was his request, okay. which makes me think this man is a complete psychopath. Well, I just, I want to get along with a gun. So to be a part of the communist party and the family is like, okay, yeah, whatever. So they all register. Lucy never thinks twice about it. She's, she's literally never voted in her entire life, but now it's the fifties and any sort of slight relation to anything communist was not okay. And so she goes to Congress. She explains the situation. She goes like, again, I've never even voted. I did it for my grandfather. And the United States government is like, okay, fine. We get it. We got your testimony. Other people have corroborated this story. Everything's fine. They closed the case. But someone had leaked it to the American public. Oh, no. And they are not so forgiving. <laughs> red hair, red communist. Mm -hmm. And even though, again, she had this sworn affidavit that said she's not a fucking communist, um, it just created a sense of distrust among her and the American people. But as usual with Lucy and Desi, they smoothed things over with a little bit of humor. And 
before taping the show one night, he Desi came out and he told the live studio audience that the only thing read about Lucy is her hair. And even that's not legitimate. Hey, listen, <laughs> I made the great joke. You were in on the joke. You I was in on, on it. it. I helped write it. <laughs> this is my second, maybe third life. <laughs> so things are now fine. And the show and Lucy are winning plenty of Emmys. And her and Desi create Desi Lu Studios, the film production company. And... They're making about $10 million a year from this production company. Fuck. Like, this show is profitable Whoa. as hell. Um, they did the Lucy show and had picked up a few other small shows, and they did a ton of commercial work. Um, so they ended I Love Lucy in 1957 and then moved on to the Lucy and Desi Comedy Hour. They also bought RKO Studios, which was where they met. Um, so they really created, like, a media empire. They also sold a ton of merchandise for this show. I mean, merch for sure. It's unbelievable. They literally sold an entire bedroom set so that you could sleep like Lucy and Ricky. I mean, I, I can picture <laughs> things with that heart on it. Oh, yeah. With, like them in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was insane. They had the fever. Um, <laughs> for more cowbell. Uh-huh. But again, they're not Lucy and Ricky. They're Lucille and Desi. And Desi is still cheating on Lucy all the fucking time. Lucy knows it. Their friends and co-workers know it. And they are fighting constantly. And then it starts to get physical. And it's just, like, not no. a good situation. Like, Ugh. Like, there are times when, like, people will see Desi, like, just shove Lucy. He's, like, roughing her up a little bit. Yeah. And then he would drink really heavily. And then one time they're fighting so bad. Lucy just grabs a hammer and she swings around and she hits Desi in the head with a hammer. And she thought she killed him. <gasps> like she's hitting him like in the temple. I don't know where she hit him in the head, but he passed out and she thought he died. And she literally looked at her maid and her maid was like, he fell. I will go with you to the grave. Like the, oh he fell. <laughs> what loose and uh, it just everything is a train wreck and lucy said later in an interview she goes oh the last five years of that marriage were a complete sham no matter how pretty it looked on tv so on march 3rd 1960 the day after desi's 43rd birthday and one day after filming the final episode of the lucy desi comedy hour lucy filed the divorce papers in santa monica claiming married life with Desi was a, quote, nightmare. Whoo, second time. Yeah. Second time's a charm. Mm -hmm. So the divorce was really finalized on May 4th, and America mourned as if their own parents had gotten the divorce. America was devastated. They hated this. They're like, no, 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 you're the perfect couple. And they're like, we really aren't. But the thing about them is, again, like, they are kind of addicted to each other and they really did love each other. But it was just not healthy relationships. So um, they stayed friends for the rest of their lives. And Desi even came to her rescue even shortly after the divorce when Lucy fell nine feet during a production of a movie with Bob Hope and she hurt herself really bad. And there Desi is in the hospital. Like, I know we got divorced like a month ago, but I'm here for you. Like, hey, listen, I didn't know Bob Hope was going to be listen. here. Listen, 
Thanks for joining us, sir. Um, but no matter how people wished and hoped that they would get back together, it just wasn't meant to be. It's like everybody with their divorced parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in 1961, she went to New York to do a Broadway musical called Wildcat as kind of a palate cleanser. Um, but Desi Lou did produce it. Um, so that meant that Desi had a say in stuff. So he's there all the time. <laughs> And so they're working together and Desi's like, ooh, I think it's going well. So he proposes to her again. Stop it. And she almost said yes. All right. But the night that this was all happening, she did her show and a couple came backstage and they said, we had to come see you because look what we found on our vacation in Hawaii. And they give her a gold wedding band. And engraved on this wedding band is to Desi with love from Lucy. He had lost his ring in Hawaii and they found it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Lucy is like, this man wants me to marry him again. This man who like carelessly like lost his ring. We got into a huge fight about it. And like all these fights are just like coming into her memory. And she's like, I can't fucking do this again. And she like was like, thank you so much. Took her pictures. And then she told Ricky or Ricky Desi she was like it's not happening I cannot marry you again this will, we will never be together again so she goes back to more radio work and she has a show called let's talk to Lucy um then she stars in a string of movies uh one of them being one of my favorite movies of all time that I have mentioned before <laughs> it's a movie called yours mine and ours um the remake is absolute trash I want to be clear okay Okay. I I hate it. It the the classic movie is so charming and fantastic and I just I hate the remake. So um that's one of my favorite movies and it also made me love Irish coffees. Um <laughs> but all the while she finds herself a new beau, a stand-up comedian named Gary Morton, who won Lucy over from the very start by saying those magical words that people with hit sitcoms love. I've never seen that show. (laughs) (laughs) They love that. They love that. That's how Jerry Seinfeld's wife got (laughs) him. And it wasn't the passionate love that she'd had with Desi, but she said she really did like him. And in 1961, the two were married with Lucy wearing the same suit she wore to her divorce hearing, which I don't know what that means. Um, Oh, I meant to talk about the reruns. My God. So I meant to say this back like a page and a half ago, but when Lucy had the baby, they wanted to take a break from filming take a break. and the studio was like, yeah, but we want to release more episodes. And Desi was like, just release old ones again. And they're like, what? Mind blown. And he goes, yeah, just play them again. They're on film. That's why we did it. Just play them again. And they could not believe it. And now reruns are just <laughs> Everyone's favorite thing. <laughs> well, they were. Now we have Netflix and a rerun is every day. A rerun. Yeah. Every episode. Every episode of everything is a rerun. Exactly. So, um, yeah, but that was the whole start of reruns was they were like, no, just play it again. Like it's it fine. started because of I Love Lucy. It's Everything's so cool. Fine. It's fine. Just so, do it again. Um, okay. New Belle. She's with the new guy. Um, <laughs> But of course, while all this is going on, she's in New York and Desilu Studios back in California is not doing so well. So she goes back 
and she tries to kind of pick things up and she's like, okay, I got a new show. It's called the Lucy show. And in 1962, the Lucy show premieres and the whole premise is her and Vivian Vance are like back together and they play widows. So it's a spinoff. So it's a spinoff, but different characters. And it's depressing. No, it's apparently super fun. They get into the same hijinks, but they're okay. just widows. Oh, okay. So All I right. guess the public was just like, sure. Yeah. that Those two guys are just dead and gone. We don't care. <laughs> so we didn't um, like them anyway. <laughs> the show did well. And ran until 1968. And then from 68 to 74, she did another show called Here's Lucy. <laughs> yeah. She just loves her name. Loves that name. <laughs> she loves it. It's fine. <laughs> so Here's Lucy is a similar premise. She's still a widow, but it focuses on the relationship of Lucy and her two teenage kids who were played by her two real teenage kids. She loves it. <laughs> she Lucy loves Jr. and like Desi it. Jr. Okay, okay, okay. And I think, again, it's Lucy kind of using television and work to keep people close to her, um, kind of like she did with Desi. She's like, you can't cheat on me if you're here. And she's like, you guys can't get into trouble if you're here. <laughs> but it kind of backfired a little bit because they saw up close and personal mom at work, which was not the best side of her. Um, and it kind of made them rebel even more. Like the daughter moved out as soon as she turned 18 and Desi Jr. is being crazy all over the place. He was running around in a band with Dean Martin Jr. And then Lucy kicked him out of the house because he had started a Mrs. Robinson style affair with one of his friend's moms. And then he got involved with a crazy paternity suit with Patty Duke. And do you want to know who that baby was? (laughs) Mari. Sean Astin. No way. Rudy himself. Desi was not the father, but Sean Astin was possibly was possibly people Lucille thought of the Ball's time. grandmother. It's grandson. grandson. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Sam. Sam Wise so, Look at you. <laughs> so crazy. So with all these hit shows, because like the shows are doing well, actually. And the studio's back in business, but watching Lucy perform day after day made Desi really depressed. And apparently he would just break down and cry all the time because he realized like what a prick he had been. So eventually he's like, I need to get out of here. And they had like a weird contract. So Lucy was like, okay, I'll buy you out. So she pays Desi $3 million and buys the company in whole, making her the very first woman to run a major Hollywood studio by herself. And it's cool because they're producing their own shows, but they're also letting other films like use their studio a lot. Like I think like the Andy Griffith show was filmed there. The Batman show was filmed there. Like they're around like some pretty cool projects. Um, But now, Lucy's the big boss, and she's in charge of every last decision, which is, frankly, extremely stressful for her. <laughs> and there was one particular show that actually might not have gotten greenlit if it wasn't for her. So the show comes across her desk, and she read the title, and she was like, okay, I get what it's about. And she just kind of like goes like, all right, fine, whatever, go ahead. She gives it the okay. So they start production. And someone asked her, like, what do you think about the new show? Isn't it exciting? She's like, oh, yeah. What's not to like? It's all about celebrities bopping around on USO tours. That's a great thing. I mean, I used to do that. And they're like, Lucy, what show are you talking about? And she said, yeah, the new show. 
the new show, Star Trek. Stars trekking about on USO tour. Oh <laughs> my God. I was going to bring up the biracial kiss thing because when you said they couldn't yeah. sleep together, that's what happens on Star Trek. She had no idea what this <laughs> show was about. Outer <laughs> She's space. Outer space. So the rest is history and we wouldn't have had Star Trek if it wasn't for Lucille Ball. Good. Um, but honestly, it was just so much fucking work. And soon Paramount came a knocking saying that they wanted to buy Desilu Studios. And Lucy cried a lot. She was like, I don't want to give up my baby. I'm so sad. But she's like, I know it's the right thing to do. So she sold her baby for a cool $17 million. <laughs> wow. And a huge weight is just lifted off her shoulders. Um, She buys a property in Aspen. She starts skiing as therapy and she's absolutely loving it. Um, And she's still doing TV work. She just doesn't own the studio anymore. So she's like, this is cool. Yeah. And she got $17 million. Yeah. Um, But then another skier crashed into her. She breaks her leg in four places. And then she is in a wheelchair for the remainder of her show. Here's Lucy. It's a real summer chair situation. Um, So in 1974, she tried to take on the role of a lifetime in the movie Mame, which was adapted from a famous Broadway musical. But it didn't go over well. So the story goes that Lucy kind of made them cast her as Mame over Angela Lansbury, who had been doing the show on Broadway and really was the better fit because the fact of the matter is Angela Lansbury is a Broadway trained singer and dancer. And Lucy is not. She can sing, but she's not Broadway caliber. And this is a Broadway caliber musical. And this has gone down as like a real dark mark on her career. And even Desi looked at the script and he told her, he goes, Lucy, I don't think you should do this. I don't, it's not right for you. You're not Mame. And she was like, no, I want to do it. And because she's the more famous star, she got the part. So that's kind of a flop. Then in 1985, she stars in a made for TV movie called Stone Pillow, where she plays an old homeless woman. And that's kind of sad to see her like that. And that's also a flop. Then in 1986, she tries for one last sitcom, a show called Life with Lucy, where she plays a grandmother. But this one was canceled after just eight episodes, even though it starred a very young Jenny Lewis, who is my favorite of all time, basically. Um, So this show gets canceled. Lucy's gotten a little slower, a little sadder, and she didn't like going out in public very much because people would expect her to look like Lucy from TV, which was 20 or 30 years ago. And she said she just couldn't take their disappointment when they realized that she aged like everyone else. She was like, nothing is worse than she's like a real person meeting a person. And they're like, but you don't look like Lucy. And she's like, I am Lucy. I, I of course I don't look like I'm 40 anymore. I'm like 75. Like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> And she got really self-conscious and it kind of clouded her judgment on just how much people loved her because also like the last couple projects she did didn't turn out so good. And she's not getting out of the house much, but one of her friends was like, no, you have to come see this play with me. It's so, so good. So he takes her out and they see actually one of my favorite plays, La Caja Fall. And during intermission, the word had spread that Lucille Ball was in the audience. Oh, for the actors. Mm-hmm. And it, and just among the crowd. So the people in 
like watching the play start to know. And so the lights go up and someone yells out from the balcony, Lucy, I love you. And the whole theater stands up and gives her a five minute long standing ovation. Wow, that is like chilling. It That's really chilling. is. And she just grabbed her friend's hand and she was just crying because she didn't know. She was like, people don't even know who I am anymore. And she got this incredible standing ovation at a place she wasn't in. She was just a patron. <laughs> she was just hanging out. <laughs> I mean, she just she just didn't know. Um, then about a month after her show was canceled in December 1986, she received the devastating news that the true love of her life, Desi Arnaz, died at the age of 69 from lung cancer. Mm. She was absolutely devastated, but she had to pull herself together because five days after his funeral, she was due in Washington, D.C. to be honored with a Kennedy Center Award presented by President Ronald Reagan. Wow. And as she's sitting in the audience, she's seeing people she loves and respect give just glowing speeches about the effect that she's had on Hollywood and them and comedy. They're, they're singing songs in tribute to her and her life and legacy. But she really lost it when an actor who had been a mainstay at Desilu, like he was in a ton of stuff, he goes up and he reads a letter from Desi that he had written just before he died. The letter said, I love Lucy had just one mission to make people laugh. Lucy gave it a rare quality. She can perform the wildest, even the messiest physical comedy without losing her feminine appeal. The New York Times asked me to divide the credit for its success between the writers, directors and the cast. I told them, give Lucy 90 percent of the credit. Divide the other 10 percent among the rest of us. Lucy was the show. Viv, Fred, and I were just props. Damn good props, but props nevertheless. P.S. I Love Lucy was never just a title. <laughs> That's so <laughs> sweet. And like the camera goes to Lucy and this like old 70-something-year-old Lucy and she's just crying. Because her it's husband like, just died. He just died. Oh. And then he writes her this beautiful letter. That's and, like, so sweet. And again, like, there are some crazy, there sh they should have been bitter enemies, but like they just never really were. They always loved each other. And like there are videos of them like playing with their grandkids in the pool together. And like they just, they loved each other. That's so sweet. I know. So the next year, Lucy has a stroke, but she pushed through it to present at the Oscars with Bob Hope, where again, she got such a outstanding standing ovation that the Oscar staff had to like shut it down because it was going on for too long. <laughs> but two weeks after the Oscars, Lucy unfortunately suffered a heart attack. She had a seven hour aortic valve surgery, which was successful until about two weeks after that, when she had an aneurysm and died on April 26 at the age of 77. Her body was cremated and the ashes were initially interned at Forest Lawn, Hollywood Hills Cemetery in L.A. But then in 2002, her children moved her remains to the Hunt family plot at Lakeview Cemetery in Jamestown, New York, where her parents and grandparents are buried and where her brother's Fred's uh, remains were also placed in 2007. And in accordance with her wishes, 
just her family was present at the funeral. And after a very short ceremony, they had a picnic outside because a picnic with her family is where Lucy was the happiest. Lucille Ball has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, a Presidential Medal of Freedom, Kennedy Center Honors, a place in the National Women's Hall of Fame, and just way too many awards to name. And even in death, she's giving people a laugh. In 2009, the town of Celeron, New York, unveiled a statue of Lucy that was comically bad. It was horrible. horrible. I've seen this statue. It's so it's bad. It's so bad. And people even named the statue Scary Lucy. <laughs> so they got a new one in 2016, which is much better. But they ended up keeping Scary Lucy because she's her own tourist attraction. <laughs> so you can see both in Celeron, New York. <laughs> Lucy will always be a landmark of television and women in comedy and women in business and she did it all on her own and I think Desi was right after being so wrong about so many other things I love Lucy was never just a title because we all love Lucy and we always will (laughs) what a good story I know I think we got to compare these people. We do. Because what everybody doesn't know right now is I left my charger at school <laughs> and we're really worried about the computer. We're really worried. Down. So what I'm going to do real quick is hit stop and save it. Oh, that's recording. Okay. So let's compare these ladies. We want to do them justice because this is lady yes. 199 and lady yes. 200. And there's so much we can say. Yes. So let's do this in a little segment we like to call just the two of us. My God, their youth <laughs> stories are so similar. So similar. They're bouncing around. Their parents are passing away. They're going to theater school. They're in New York. Like, it was just that time in American history. It really was. And it's very interesting, too, that, like, they're both in the arts, but with very different goals. You know what I'm saying? And, like, they both went to such different types of schools. But at some point, they both dropped out because they were like, I don't need that. I'm so much bigger than this. I'm just bigger than this. I am. Because they. I think they both had this self-confidence. And I think Lucy's kind of came and went. But I think Pamela just had hers all along. She's just one of those girls that just had effortless self-confidence. She's just like, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Everything's yeah. fine. I'll be fine. Yeah. And then, but because they both dropped out. They ended up just working all these random jobs, doing all these random things, which I think adds humanity to a person. Absolutely. And it makes you well-rounded and it it just gives you a better perspective on how the world works and how other people work. (laughs) Because if you don't see people as people, like it just has such a big impact on you. And I think that's why like, people felt that they could connect with Lucy even just like on screen or through the radio. They were like, no, like I get you. She's one of us. Like, and that's why she was able to make everyday situations so funny on her show. And what's so funny is that we felt like Pamela Coleman Smith, like I can connect with her. She looks like me. Her life seems normal. It seems modern and contemporary. And it's like, I was two years old when um, Lucille Ball died, but I watched her show yeah. Well into my teens and, and like even now, obviously, but in my teen years, not realizing how old the show was. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's yeah. just like, I relate to that. That's funny. I get it. Yeah. And even if like you're a person who like, honestly, I don't know if I've ever seen like a full episode of I Love Lucy. 
I just oh, see I the have clips. my grandfather loved oh, really? it. I would watch it all the time at their house. That yeah. and Gilligan's Island, always oh, on reruns. I did love Gilligan's Island. Um, but you know what I'm saying? It's like this show that's such a cultural icon that like you almost don't even think about it being like a real thing. And I feel like that with a lot of the art that Pamela did. It's because it's their stuff transcended them. We have never, as the United States, outgrown either of them. Yeah. Not the tarot and certainly not Lucy. No. No. And it's just they are like a guidepost or like a touching point to like specific things. And it's like if you're not super into tarot, fine. But I guarantee you've seen these pictures. Yeah. They even mimicked the pictures of them in um, The Princess and the Frog when like the guy's laying down the cards. Mm -hmm. Like they're mimicking that style of artwork. And it's like. that comes from Pamela Coleman Smith. Yeah. Just like our jokes and the way we run TV came from Lucille Ball. Yeah. No, it totally did. They both reformed this thing that like they made the standards. That's what they did. They recreated the standards, which I think is so crazy. And they both also at some point opened up their own production facility. Right. Like, Pamela was like, all right, I'm going to open up my own press. If you don't want me to do what I'm about to do, then I'm going to do what I want to fucking do and invite other people to do the same. And Lucy did the same thing with Desi Lou. She's like, all right, I'm going to be in control of the means of productions. <laughs> and I just love that they both came into power in their own right. And they both just like worked really hard. Oh yeah. And I think it's really crazy that, Pamela died in 1951 when I Love Lucy is like premiering. Yeah. It's Pamela so Coleman crazy. Smith, I'm sure, watched I Love Lucy. That's insane. It was so famous. Yeah. Like everybody knew it. And like Pamela Coleman Smith was like, oh, like a cool, yeah. normal ass person. I'm sure her and Nora like snuggled up on the couch and were like watching oh. episodes of I Love Lucy. And yes, she was in London, but people in London fucking like American TV. So calm <laughs> down. I watch the BBC all the goddamn time. <laughs> it's great. Um, I liked that they both like play, tried to play the exotic card. Like yeah. I'm from Montana. <laughs> I'm exotic. I'm from Jamaica. Right. <laughs> and it was just what they did. And they were both also hanging with the right people. Like yes. their side characters in their stories were <laughs> famous, famous fucking people, <laughs> like really famous. And yeah. that is so cool because what it means is you're in a group of people that are on the precipice of being amazing and mm-hmm. it's like you're part of the rat pack that yeah. made it through no absolutely it's like a cast of snl yeah you're like in the crew <laughs> and i love the idea that you know lucy's playing this 1950s housewife but really she's anything but and even her character is not a very good housewife no and uh, i feel like pamela was anything but like a traditional 1800s woman like she just did not give a fuck like (laughs) at all at all and I don't think Lucy did either I think both of them were just like yeah you know what I'm gonna be anything but you what you want me to be and I just respect that so much in both of them and I wish that we knew Pamela's story and her name and her face as much as we did Lucy's I love that Lucy made it acceptable like on accident to have a biracial like relationship yeah like 
she's doing this on TV because she could. She yeah. was famous enough yeah. to do it. And I think like Pamela Coleman Smith was like just ambiguous enough that she could yeah. do what she needed to do. Yeah. Well, and, and she's also in a taboo relationship with a woman that like we can't even really verify verify. Because there's no way she could have been public about it. There no. just isn't. Like, I mean, we had women that were like Charlotte Cushman was like, yeah, I'm a fucking lesbian. <laughs> Call me up. Look at me in my top hat. But like <laughs> for a lot of women, it was like, I can't tell anyone I will be blacklisted. <laughs> like I will be kicked out of every venue from here to kingdom come. It's true. <laughs> and you said that Lucy was so good at honest comedy and yeah. I think Pamela was great at honest art. Yeah. She was like, listen, here's where I grew up, but I'm not just a Christian. I'm not just Jamaican. I'm not just from Ireland. I'm all these things. And a person can be more than one thing. And that's what honesty is. And I'm going to yeah. put it on paper. And Lucy put it on film. She did. I mean, and it sucks because like the, o- like, the only dishonest thing was that her marriage was actually in shambles. But also like... That's because it was a TV show. Like the marriage was never supposed to be like, and then we're home and we act exactly the same way. Like it it wasn't keeping up with the Kardashians. No, it wasn't. This was like, or the hill. We are not that same couple, but people just couldn't separate it. Like, which again is like, I don't know. It's just, it's just wild. I mean, you also (laughs) said Lucy had this feminine appeal. Mm -hmm. And I I think that Pamela had an artistic appeal. I think that, like, people were drawn to them because they were talented. They were, for the most part, kind. But artists, a true artist is sucks people in. They have a gravitational pull. They absolutely do. Mm. Well, I love both of them. I think Mm -hmm. this is great. I'm I'm fascinated with it and yeah. I'm really excited that we got to do this. Thank you, Mora. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. Marjorie. Ah, the best. Really good requests and yes. great for our t- two, you know, we're into the 200s now. Every woman past this, we're in the 200s. Very exciting. It really is because, <laughs> the, I mean, our list is so long that we still have to do. Yes. So this is lovely. Yeah. Um, are you ready to toast? I'm ready to toast. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? I just want to I want to toast women who actually get up and like do what they say they're going to do. Mm, um mm-hmm. I think that's cool and I think it's hard it's hard to do. Yeah. It's hard to be like, yeah, but now I'm a wife, now I'm a mother, now I'm a this. I don't have time to do my thing, but it's yeah. like, okay, but I I get it. I'm a mom too. I like I work all day, but like sometimes you have to climb down from Martyr Mountain and mm-hmm. just like do your thing. And yeah. Pamela was not a mom and she was not a wife. So I don't know that that's something that like she she could kind of live her own thing. Mm-hmm. But you can live your own thing and be a mom and a wife or live your own thing and be single or yeah. a lesbian or childless. And it's just if you want to do something just like fucking do it yeah and that's what she did and i like women that do that because i think it's really cool yeah here we go so cheers Cheers. what do you got so i am going to toast lucille and other women who just keep working at it even if they don't make it until later in life Mm. i had no idea that she was 40 no she looks fucking good yeah by the time she was on i love lucy 
And women did not age the same way that they do now. No, like, they were in white gloves. I look at pictures of my grandparents from the 50s, and I'm like, you were 25 and you look 50. Yeah. Like, so weird. Right. But I just feel like she's timeless, and she waited so long to get her big break, and I don't think a lot of people really realize that. Because if it wasn't for that show, she honestly might have just gone down as like, Oh, yeah, she was in a couple movies, and that's all we would have known. And that takes so that's much confidence. all we would have known. So I just want to toast her for making it later in life and changing how we watch TV on the way. Hell, yeah. Cheers. All right, Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay, so me and producer watched The Social Dilemma, mm-hmm. which is the new documentary that came out about social media. And we just liked it. It was good. It was all the things I knew. Like, I know there's an algorithm watching me. I know there's a this. I know there's a that. But the cool thing about the documentary is that there were, everybody interviewed was a former employee of Google or Facebook or Pinterest or Instagram or like, and they're just like, I wrote these programs and I can tell you what's happening. Like, I can explain to you exactly. And I don't let my kids touch a phone. And I think the most powerful statement that was made was about, so teenage girls and preteens, um, girls specifically, suicide rates have skyrocketed. Oh, my god! Because, like, your phone's in your bedroom all night. So an incident that happened at school is now pinging all day long. So, like, you never get to go home and have that, like, cave to, like, be like, that never happened. You know how, mm-hmm. like, you get home from school and you're like, okay, I'm going to forget I farted in class. It didn't happen. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore for people. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it was a really, really cool way to look at social media. And, of course, they're like, delete all your accounts. <laughs> I'm not that kind of person. Yeah, I'm not, you're like, like, I can't. Like, and also trust me, I'd love to. But, like. And also, I turn off notifications to things. I'm yeah. not a slave to notifications, which no. is why, guys, sometimes I don't answer you right away when you send oh, us yeah. stuff. You I had turn to them turn off. off. I had to turn mine off, too. And you know what else I did? I moved Instagram all the way to the back page of my phone. Mm. So I have to like actually like, yeah, like swipe multiple times to like get back to it. Right. Which is actually cut down on my time like a lot. It's It's crazy. Just like these little like barriers that you can put in like, you know, and I, I, and I years ago deleted the Facebook app on my phone and I just do Safari on my phone. If I I do that with Amazon because I don't want easy access. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, the point is just like, like watch it. Don't go all gung ho and delete everything you have. But like, yeah. it's, it's good information to have in your back pocket when people ask you like why you, what you do on social media and why you do it. Okay. Yeah. What is your thing? Okay. Well, I am going to promote just going on. Like, I think background music is very important to have in your daily life. Okay. okay. And there are some really just delightful autumn jazz playlists on YouTube. Just type it in. Pick which one, you know, strikes your fancy. Um, There's a lot of them. So Mm. I just like when I'm like cleaning or like working or like researching or something, I just like to have like some like nice like jazz on in the background. Mm. And some of these playlists are really hitting the spot right now. So I'd recommend some nice autumn jazz. Um, You know, they can be lo-fi. They can be traditional jazz, but they're all good and they all really get you in the mood for doing what you got to do. I love that. So that's what I'm going to recommend. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, 
I'm going to recommend this show to everyone. Do it. Find us on the social media that you didn't delete. Please do. Um, Rate and review us. We love that. Thank you to the people who did that this week. Mm. You can go and you can support us on Patreon. We'll send you stickers. We'll Mm -hmm. send you other stuff. The longer Mm -hmm. you're a Patreon, the more stuff we send you. Um, Just be, be a part of it. Yeah. Listen to the show. Talk to us. Request people. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, the whole gamut. LinkedIn. We're We're here. here. (laughs) We're here. Um, But most importantly, I mean, besides rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, that would be dope. Um, But most importantly, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women have mailbox art. (laughs) Mailbox (laughs) art. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.